gospel reading this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth in Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I absolutely love it when an expert confirms what I already think. Have you ever had that experience? You have a theory about one of the great questions of our time. Questions like, is it cruel to hypnotize a chicken? Or, why are girls' basketball games shorter than boy basketball games? Or, what happened to the 30-hour work week in the paperless office that they all promised us? For all of the important questions, of course, there are official answers... There is the received opinion, there are the traditional answers, there are the answers that the mysterious they pronounce. But perhaps you have a cockamamie theory, your own non-standard theory, and you share that theory with your family at the dinner table, but they dismiss it as outlandish. I mean, how can the received opinion be wrong? But then you do a little bit of research. And you discover that, lo and behold, the top expert in the field of chicken hypnosis, the leading authority in female sports history, or the big kahuna in office automation actually agrees with your crazy theory. I love when this happens. That's how I felt this week, when none other than John Piper confirmed my theory about happiness and joy. I'm sure you've all heard it said that happiness and joy are not the same thing. That happiness is fleeting, but joy is long-lasting. That happiness is emotional, 
but joy is spiritual. That happiness is about what happens to you, but joy is about who you are. That happiness is external, but joy is about our internal condition. That happiness is worldly, but joy is Christian. You've probably all heard messages like that. Maybe you've even heard sermons like that about this distinction between happiness and joy. This is the third Sunday of Advent, the four-week season of preparation for Christmas. And this Advent season, I am preaching on four traditional Advent themes. Hope, peace, joy, and love. This week's theme is joy, and that's what's gotten me to thinking about this familiar and often repeated contrast between happiness and joy. But this week... As I began to study scripture passage after scripture passage about joy, expecting all the while to find this sharp distinction between happiness and joy, what I found instead is that scripture makes no distinction between joy and happiness. Or for that matter, between joy and blessedness. Or between joy and delight. Or between joy and gladness. Or between joy and pleasure. What I discovered is that the often repeated contrast between happiness and joy, the received opinion that happiness and joy are somehow different, that that simply cannot be found in scripture. Now, I don't like any more than the next guy to be out of step with the opinions of our time. I don't like any more than the next guy to hold unpopular beliefs. So when my reading of Scripture wasn't confirming the received opinions propagated by the unnamed and unnumbered they of public opinion, I began to feel a little discomfort. In fact, when I started out on Monday to work on this sermon, I thought that today's sermon would be just that, an affirmation. That happiness and joy are not the same and that we as Christians need to pursue joy... And forget about happiness. But now that I've done my homework in the scriptures, I find that I have to preach a different sermon. Because my conscience and my preaching must be constrained by scripture and not by popular opinion. And that puts me in an awkward spot. And so you can imagine my relief when none other than John Piper comes to my rescue. I found a little podcast by Piper talking about this very issue, and here's what he said. I quote, If you have nice little categories, joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you come to the Bible. Because the Bible is indiscriminate in its use of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. Thank you, Dr. Piper. I absolutely love it when an expert confirms what I already think. So let's listen to the word of God this morning and see how the divine mind links joy and happiness. In the book of Esther, King Xerxes issues a decree giving the Jews the right to assemble and the right to defend themselves with arms. And all the schemes of the evil Jew-hating Haman are brought to naught, and the children of Israel were saved. Here's what we read in Scripture. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, 
Gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. Now notice that happiness and joy are not contrasted or opposed. Rather, they're linked. Gladness and joy are not contrasted or opposed. Rather, they are linked. And then one more thing to notice in this passage All of this joy and gladness and happiness calls for feasting and celebration. Gladness and joy and happiness are emotions. They are internal feelings that we have, but they demand of us an external response. They call for a visible reaction. In this case, the response and the reaction was feasting and celebrating. It would be bizarre and unnatural to bottle up our joy and our happiness and to not let others see it. Joy elicits a response. In Psalm 43, King David talks about the pleasures of worshiping God. He writes, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Here, joy and delight are linked rather than contrasted. Sheer joy and delight in being in the presence of God. There's a unity between those two things. And notice that the internal feeling of joy and delight produces an external response in this case also. I will praise you with the lyre. In Esther, the joy and the happiness produced feasting and celebration. Here, David's joy and delight produce an outburst of musical and instrumental praise. Two very common phrases in Scripture which link the external outburst with the internal feeling of joy are these. Sing for joy and shout for joy. These noisy phrases appear many, 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 many times in Scripture. Here's a familiar example from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How many of us are obeying that biblical command? Or how about, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud. So I have this problem that uh, my wife is very funny and she tells very subtle jokes and for whatever perverted reason, I don't like to laugh out loud about them, okay? And so I tell her, you know, I'm laughing inside, okay? Bible doesn't say that the joy just stays inside, okay? We're not shouting just inside. We're not just clapping our hands inside. This is an external event. Something's going on inside of us, and if you are sane and healthy, it produces something external, all right? I confess that I still laugh inside. Those of us who are saved should ask ourselves the question, are we being noisy for God? Or how about this one from Psalm 33? Sing to him a new song. By the way, Scripture never, ever, not in one place says sing to him an old song. 
always says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully, thank you musicians, and shout for joy. I could give you more examples. There are lots and lots and lots of them. Go to your concordance and look for shout for joy. It's all over the place. The truth is really simple. If we have this internal feeling of joy and happiness and delighted, connected with knowing God, that joy will generate an external response. There's just no way around it. And so when someone in worship shouts out in joy, when someone in worship makes a joyful noise to the Lord, don't let your lack of joy dampen the joy of your brother or sister in Christ. There is absolutely nothing in scripture that tells us that the worship in the temple or that the worship in the early church was quiet. And it wasn't quiet. And it wasn't quiet because those people were filled with joy and happiness and delight. And when we're filled to overflowing with those emotions, there's just no way to keep us quiet. And so finally, let's take a look at Psalm 16. This is a messianic psalm. And it gives a hint about life after death. Those of you who are interested in that. Those of you who are drawing close to that. David writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now here the word of God links joy, Christian joy and pleasure. Eternity with God will be joy-filled and it will be endlessly pleasurable. Say that word, pleasurable. Does that make you nervous? Some of us Puritans get a little nervous about pleasure. And about linking God with pleasure or our faith with pleasure. But the Bible doesn't have that problem. Okay, Joy is pleasant. Scripture is perfectly clear. The joy of the Lord is very pleasant. And when we're with God, we are going to experience endless pleasure. Pleasure and joy are not contrasted in Scripture. They're linked. What I want you to see in this brief review of some Scripture passages about joy is that Scripture never... Sets happiness and joy in opposition. But rather the word of God equates godly joy with happiness and delight and gladness and pleasure. They're all wrapped up in a single package. All part of what God has in mind for his children. And we make a mistake when we think of the Christian life as all about patient suffering and holding out and putting on a brave face until we see heaven. Friends, if we are doing this Christian pilgrimage right... Our lives should be the most delightful, the most pleasure-filled, the most happy, the most glad lives conceivable. And I'm talking about this side of glory. And on the other side, of course, it's going to be an endless party. But it starts here. Joy is a theme during Advent and Christian because of the announcement to the shepherds in the field on the night that Jesus was born. Here's how Luke records that event for us. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Joy is also a theme during Advent and the Christmas season because of the reaction of the wise men who were looking for the Messiah. Here's how Matthew records that event. The star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These two pieces of the Christmas story ring with great joy. And that theme has been picked up in so many of our Christmas carols. Remembering the wise men, we sing, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. And then echoing the message of the angels, we sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And of course, the granddaddy of Christmas carols, Joy to the World, that one belts it out in double forte, Joy to the Earth. The Savior reigns. Let men and women their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. For those who grasp what's going on, and at this point in the Christmas story, it's just the angel and the wise men. For those who grasped what was going on, the arrival of Jesus Messiah was news of tremendous joy. Because Jesus is the Savior sent by the Father to people that He loves. Because Jesus answers the problem of what to do about human sin. Jesus solves the sin problem in two ways. First, he perfectly fulfills God's law. And second, he bore the divine penalty for our violation of God's law. Jesus lived a perfect life, but he died a sinner's death. And he did that so that by faith in him, we might be saved from the consequences of our sin. Now, maybe you're one of those people who doesn't quite understand what all this fuss about sin is. Maybe you say to yourself, hey, I'm a good person, I'm a nice guy, what's the big deal with this sin? But listen to the Word of God and what it says about who you are. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But they are corrupt, their deeds are vile, There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's anyone who understands, any who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The word of the Lord. And in 1 John we read, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Fools and Self-deceived people. Those are the ones who imagine they have no problem with sin. These days, 
we call those kinds of people, people living in denial. Here's the reality. God has a standard of human conduct. He made that standard known to the world. He made it known to you. And all of us have failed to live up to that standard. And that creates for us a sin problem, a problem of divine judgment and divine justice. And Jesus is God's answer to that problem. Listen to Jesus himself as he explains this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that's good news. That's good news of great joy for those who receive Jesus as their Savior. Shortly before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you may, so that where I am you may be also. During the Advent season, we get ready for the coming of Christmas. We think about the Christmas story and the baby, and baby Jesus. But we also look forward to the return of Jesus. We think about Jesus' return in power and in glory to gather up his own. In both of these stories, both of these Advent stories, if we hear them with ears of faith, we discover that they are overflowing with great joy. The arrival of a Savior who will enable us to be redeemed from slavery to sin who will enable us to be relieved of the divine penalty for our sin. And the return of the Savior, who will gather us up to himself, who will take us to be with him forever in glory. That's joyful news. When you hear the word joy this Advent season, I want you to think about a joy that is filled with happiness And that's filled with gladness, and that's filled with pleasure, and that's filled with delight. I want you to think about what it is that Christ has accomplished for you on the cross, and I want you to think about what God will accomplish for you when Christ returns to bring you to himself. Realize that the joy of our faith is a joy that will always result in outbursts of feasting and celebration, in singing and in praise and in shouts and in clapping. Realize that Christmas is about real happiness and about everlasting joy. The announcement made by the angel to humble shepherds in a field at night is the God's honest truth. And may God give each one of us ears to hear and the will to receive that great good news of overwhelming joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this message of joy and we pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Amen.